from Leviticus 19 as we begin this evening. I had chosen as the topic for the summer series the challenge of the law, and it's been more even a challenge than I had thought. Topical preaching is not my strong suit by a long shot, so it's been a challenge to outline this, but it seemed uh, best as we began to examine the law itself to return to Leviticus chapter 19 and the beginning of what has been called the Holiness Code to anchor ourselves, I think, in, in two of the phrases that really we, we need to remember as we look at the law. So I'll read uh, the first four verses of Leviticus 19 and then we'll pray as we begin. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall reference his father and mother, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. Let us pray. Father, as we have just sung of one who yearned to understand your law, one who had, according to the words of the, the hymn, ardent zeal for that which delighted his soul, your, your law, in whom was all his delight. And we ask that you would grant that attitude to us to look into the law, to look into your word, to look into the scriptures, to understand, to know, and not only to obey, but to enjoy what you have instructed us to do, because you indeed are the Lord our God, and there is no other. We ask that we would desire these things for your glory and for the building up of your church. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I titled my sermon, Law and Order, and then I began to think that I don't know the origin of that phrase, and uh, my search on the internet was not very helpful because uh, nine out of every ten citations were on our current president and his idea of law and order, and it wasn't very helpful. It was dominated otherwise by a discussion of former presidents Nixon and Reagan, and their use of law and order, and pointing to the fact that we need laws about criminal behavior, and then we need appropriate punishment for those laws, and then quickly the arguments devolved into capital punishment. When I think of law and order, at least when I look at Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, I think there is something different. Yes, there is the law, and yes, there is justice and punishment for lawlessness. But I, this evening, I want to look at the law in terms of what the Scripture says, at least in overview of the law, 
Because the law dominates the five books of Moses, the, what we call the Pentateuch. And the Ten Commandments are at the heart of th those writings. And they, the Ten Commandments, were written by the finger of God himself on the tablets that Moses took upon the mountain. They were spoken first originally to the people directly. And so the Ten Commandments have that central place where the other instructions given to Moses by God were, were given directly to him, and over time he wrote those down. And we spoke last time about the, the tabernacle and the sacrifices, the, the priests and the land as kind of being the, what we need to come back and, and look at in terms of the, the context of which, in which the law was given. And inside the tabernacle, showing us the, the beauty of God, the orderliness, the organization of God himself in that Holy of Holies, was there not the, the ark? But what was in the ark was there was only the two tablets. Uh, some believing that not just the two tables of the law, as some people say it, the, that there was actually two copies of the same Ten Commandments in the ark, showing that this was the place where God spoke and this was the place where man went and would eventually go to speak with God, that there they met. I'm still looking into that and try to understand what the words mean, but we do know that the Ten Commandments were placed in the ark, and the other parts of the law, as we read in Deuteronomy 31, before the people were going across to actually possess the promised land, they were placed beside the ark as a warning, as a testimony to their behavior or what their tendencies were like. So the main function of the the ark was the place where God would speak with Moses. He had the mercy seat and the Ten Commandments there as a symbol that that's where they were stored because they were a communication, a word from God himself. And as we looked at the ark, of course, we saw that it was a copy of the heavenly palace of the great king, that it was to reflect him. It was to exalt him, exalt his heavenly character. But again, we, we see that God is a God who speaks. It's a unique thing that God has done, speaking to his people as the great king, depositing the commandments in the Ark of the Covenant. God is, is speaking to us as creator and God as redeemer. In creation, we hear first the, the word of power, do we not? The, the word that called the world into, into existence. But there are also words of orderliness. When God spoke of his creation, not only calling it into existence, but giving it structure, giving it order, giving it a pattern. And so with these first words, I think of what I would think of as redemption in the law, 
we have words of power and words of order as well. They were words of power because God, just as he's giving the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, he tells Moses, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage in Egypt. They're, they're words of freedom. They're, they're words of, of freeing them from the bondage to Egypt and the tyranny that they had there. But again, they are words of order because he is forming a nation. He is forming a, a governing way of life. So we have words of power and order in creation, words of power and order in redemption. And God's rule as king is expressed in the law. There are three that Vern Porthris cites in his book, the shadow of Christ in the law of Moses. They are order and system, God's character and punishment and judgment and rewards. And I want to begin looking at the first of those this evening, the idea of order and system, the idea of regularity, of righteousness, of, of purity, or, or what Porthras calls fitness of the people. This is the expression of God's rule in the law. So I'd like to look at three points. The law as sovereign treaty. The law as God's order. And the law as prefiguring the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I know that is a tall order. And we will only break the surface perhaps here or scratch it. But I think in order to understand the law, we need to understand what it is. And, and again, my confusion was, well, what, what does the law mean? The, the law is used four ways in the Old Testament even, uh, and particularly as we look in the New Testament, I believe it's in Romans, but in, within two verses, Paul uses the law three different ways. And, and we as Westerners, uh, not understanding these things, there can be a lot of confusion. What do we mean by the law? And so I, I want to say I, I don't mean law and order in, in terms of criminal punishment and, and law in that sense tonight. But what is the law as a whole that God gave to the people of Israel? Well, God's law has been called the treaty of the great king. A treaty, by definition, is an agreement or an arrangement made by negotiation. That the king would negotiate and make an arrangement with another king, perhaps. Well, here we have a one-sided agreement. We have a one-sided arrangement, not by negotiation, but the treaty as an expression or an instrument of one king's will. The will of God for his people. It's an instrument to express his kingly rule. And the analogy that they could understand is the rule of God as understood as, as the rule of a king, a human king. Where it has an origin and it has a pattern, but it's also unique. And in the case of God's kingly rule, it is exalted. The tabernacle tells us that, that there will be that beauty and that order and that exactness and that exaltation of who God is. 
So what we really have is a treaty of God's will for his people, and it cannot be divorced. In fact, there are some who would explain that it is simply, if you were to look at God's will, it's simply fleshing out in language his character, the character of Almighty God, because his will cannot be different from his character. But we see in the law, as you read it, God promised care and provision from them, and the people, did they not promise obedience and loyalty to God in that law? But I think at this point it is appropriate to give a reminder to ourselves. I'm going to quote from O. Palmer Robertson and his book on Christ in the Covenants. He simply says this phrase, covenant always supersedes law. Paul goes into that some in the section we haven't quite gotten to in Galatians 3, talking about the, the, the law came 430 years after the promise. The, the covenant is the foundation. The covenant was given first. The covenant is what supersedes the law. He goes on to say this, quote, Covenant binds persons. Externalized legal stipulations represent one mode of administration of the covenantal bond. See, the, the law is a way to administer the covenant. It, it is a way to govern within the covenant. And how is that done? The law is the externalized summation of the will of God. Again, it's not simply a revelation of who God is. It's something written, something outside of man, something that demands conformity. So it's, it's not simply telling us what God is like. It, it, it goes further than that. And it's not simply following human perceptions of the law. And I, I don't know quite where it comes from, but several of the authors that I read seem to, to, perhaps they understand man better than I do, that when people hear of the law of God, they, they, it, it is a self-governing law, a, a human law, an idea of this is how I think God would want me to be, and that's all I need to know. But... The law, again, reflects the character of the whole person of God. And so it can't come from man. It can't be from within man's knowledge or his idea because it reflects him. And that's why I believe that not only in Exodus 20 where he prefaces the Ten Commandments, but what we've read here in Leviticus the phrase that's repeated over and over and over in these chapters of the Holiness Code, I am the Lord your God. I am Jehovah your God, is the foundational co concept of covenantal law, the law of the covenant. I am the Lord your God. That's where it must rest. That's where it must, must have its anchor in the promise of God giving himself to the people, I am the Lord your God. But this law has an order. And I think in this, 
there's kind of two themes going on. I kind of skewed it toward the order this evening, but there is order and separation as, as themes in the law of God in that order. Order and separation. God the Creator gave life and established order and standards for that life. God's people, as they are God's people, must submit to that order. They must live lives reflecting that order, reflecting His character, His righteousness, His will. We see that God set an order. Uh, perhaps one of the simple things that appeared um, in Genesis 1 even, of, of that idea of the order, and, and, and we take that analogy when we look at the law, is God established that the animals would reproduce after their kind. That is an order. That is a pattern. There is that which God had set as how things would work. But perhaps further and more significant, we see from Genesis 1, the order that man and man as human beings in the sight of God were created in the image of God, uniquely set aside to represent Him, uniquely to become heirs of dominion of the earth following his order, his design, learning by language, by knowledge, by rational thinking to think thoughts after him, to understand how they were to take dominion over creation. God's order from creation, again, as I say, we see that moving toward order in the law. But that original order, of course, was marred by the fall. In salvation in showing us the redemption in the law of the Pentateuch, God is acting to restore that order, to recreate that order. We see something of a hint of this in Isaiah 65. For behold, he says, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. There, there is a, a restoring of that order as part of, of God's working in the history of redemption. And then, of course, gloriously, we see it in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. A restoring, a recreation of man as an individual because of Christ, the work that Christ has done. So we see that there was a created order, and yet that order was marred, and destruction upon it by the fall. And so we see in the giving of the law a pattern of restoring that order. And we hear the words clean and unclean. And I, I don't have time to go into all the, the details here, but, but we see that the idea of being clean or unclean is a foreshadowing of how God would cleanse sin, how he would renew people to display a renewed character that reflected his own character. That their lives would conform to his own will. Again, order and separation. 
order in their lives and separation from sin is part of this restoration and recreation, recreation. Things associated with God and with life are considered to be clean. Things associated with life, things associated with vitality, considered to be clean. Death is associated with sin and disorder. Therefore, things of death or disorder are considered to be unclean. So we have life and being clean. Death associated with things that are going to greater and greater disorder, greater destruction, greater breaking down, unclean. And so we have these examples in the law of dead bodies, how they were declared to be unclean. Why? Because they're degrading the order of life, that they're decaying. And so you have life breaking down into further and further disorder. And, and relative to the non-living things, a, a dead person returning to the earth, a kind of a picture of, of returning to that non-life or disorder, if you will. And even the association with dead things, touching a dead body made a person unclean. Or even a bird whose natural inclination, a vulture to swoop down and eat roadkill, something that is dead, carry on, was considered unclean. Uh, an animal that had that as its part of its life. Things that were defective things that were not in uh, conformity to the paradigm of, of which God selected. For example, the, the water creature paradigm. Fish with scales were part of the order, and all others were considered some deviation from that set order or paradigm. Creatures with legs that function as we, as humans, we see legs functioning, were considered clean, were considered the normal paradigm. But crawling things, crawling insects were considered unclean because they didn't follow that pattern. Again, we're talking about order. We're talking about God's selected design for clean and unclean. And then diseased or defective animals were not in themselves sinful, but they were unacceptable for sacrifices because they were some degradation of the order and of the design. And then we see things like mixtures. And I don't remember enough chemistry to know how to explain it chemistry-wise, but I do know in the Old Testament they were not allowed to sow seeds of two different kinds in the same field or to mix two different kinds of cloth to make a garment that was considered not according to the order, according to the pattern. And then, of course, as we have been hearing, as Tim has been reading from Leviticus on Sunday mornings, the disorder of infectious diseases. Disorder is illustrated in the case of a spreading skin disease like leprosy or abnormal bodily discharges would consider, again, a disorder, something that was disorderly to the paradigm, to the pattern of 
cleanness and were considered unclean. So these are the things that, again, the law and the order, but we see the beauty of God and the orderliness, the organization of God, and, and yet God as lawgiver reflecting his character in giving of the order. But we must always remember that the law is a shadow. And part of that prefiguring of Christ, particularly the righteousness of Christ, that Christ would show us God's way of life by his example, by the things that he taught, by the way in which he led and taught his disciples, his apostles, and their further teaching after the resurrection. He alone perfectly kept all of the law. He was consistent in it. He was thorough in it. He was obedient in all the law. And I believe that by that law keeping, he not only honored the law itself. It's kind of easy to say, yeah, he, he kept the law. But, but the law keeping is not just the doing, but the honoring the honoring of the one who gave the law. And I believe that when we say Christ honored the Father, he absolutely did honor not only the law, but the Father who gave that law. He honored the purpose and the intent of the law in his obedience. But he also prefigured, or the law prefigures the righteousness in Christ in that it shows us more of God's character in his communion with his people by the revelation of himself as a person, as one to whom we could have fellowship, we could have discussion, we could have communion. And we see that clearly in Hebrews chapter 1, the passage that you're very familiar with. God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He has spoken to us. He has given us the word of power and order through his Son, the Logos, the, the word of God. And he has also shown us in the law a prefiguring of Christ's righteousness in atonement. God's atoning for the sins of man by Christ's obedience even to death on the cross. Christ laying down his life, being crucified on the cross, he ultimately remedied the destruction and disorder of humanity, did he not? The disorder caused by sin and the destruction caused to people because of that sin, Christ paid the price to remedy that, that there would be restoration, that there would be new creatures in him. Vern Porthras writes, The law of Moses is a reflection and foreshadowing of the absolute perfection and righteousness of Christ, rather than... Christ being a reflection of the law. We, we, we can't get that backwards. Christ is not just a reflection of the law. He is 
a reflection of absolute perfection and righteousness. The law of God comes to full expression as the treaty, the expression of the great king only through the coming of Christ, the word of God, and the, his union with us by hearing with faith. This is true law and order. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask again that you would give us understanding, give us good thinking through these things as we search the scriptures, as we seek to know, as we seek to obey, as we seek to honor, as we seek to glorify our Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect man. And we ask that you would do this again. We ask for your church as we sang this evening, pity the nations, O our God. Pity America, O our God. Pity the residents of Greenville, O our God, that they may know you, that they may come to worship you, that you may draw them to yourself as people who know their God. We ask that you would do this because you are the Lord our God and there is no other. In Christ's name we pray, amen.